Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in front of and behind the camera by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films and exploring their pop culture significance. My name is Courtney Small from Cinema Access. And I'm Andrew Hathaway of Can't Stop the Movies. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com. We highly recommend you visit their site and discover the other great podcasts on their network. You can also find links to every short film that we discuss on our episode page, as well as the wonderful artwork that's created for us by Seth Gordon. And you can also find information on how to get in touch with Seth Gordon if you want some of that artwork to take home for yourself. Before we get to our main feature film of the day, which is 1997's romantic comedy Love Jones, we'd like to start each episode by discussing a short film that caught our attention. So, Andrew, why don't you kick us off? What film do you want the listeners to check out? The first film that I've got here today, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about college obsessions, both potential and ones that I actually had throughout the podcast. So this one is... Are You the Favorite Person of Anybody? That may seem like kind of an awkward title, because when I go up to someone, I may say, are you someone's favorite person? Something like that. The title immediately forces you to think about those words. And it's just a quick little snapshot of four different lives. There's a man with a clipboard played by John C. Riley, as all of the people in this are more or less kind of playing versions of themselves. And he comes across Miranda July, who also wrote the story for this. Mike White and Chuy Chavez was directed by Miguel Artida. And it's just a, a lovely little understated black and white thing that on first glance, you'd think it'd be kind of a throwaway. And I know that anything Miranda July is involved with can be kind of divisive with some people because they may find it a little too twee or weird but she plays the strings of my heart and the little encounters here some of them are heartbreaking in different ways actually they kind of all are july comes up first and she is so dead set that her ex-girlfriend thinks of her as her favorite person and then mike white who is not certain but when we reveal that he has a girlfriend anyway let's get with the plot synopsis because you should probably just watch it going to the the heartbreak that's what sticks with me, it's a very bittersweet film, short though it may be, and, I, and their decision to film it in black and white highlights that. I know Ebert said that black and white was the, the real color of emotional truth in movies, and I'm probably screwing up the quote, but because it forced those contrasts and also be talking about contrasts with Love Jones, but it's those tiny emotional snapshots. And each person plays their role so quickly and so perfectly that we get to see what different kinds of relationships look like in relation to someone who's just curious. I've loved this for years. I watched it after, I guess I discovered it more, I should say, after Me, You, and Everyone We Know. And I fell in love with Miranda July since. Was this your first time with it? Or had you have any previous experience with Miss July? This was my first time with this film. I, had, I didn't even know this film existed. It was kind of a treat just watching Riley and Mike White, people that I know. I must admit, for Miranda July, I have a huge blind spot. I know she's done, I think, what, two directed? I think two or three features and yes. a whole bunch of shorts. And I've heard mixed things about both of those films, as you've alluded to, but I've just never got around to it. And it was funny because after watching this, I instantly went to our little list of directors and stuff, and I put her name down because she's someone whose work I'm, I'm now kind of curious in experiencing further. I was taken by this film in the sense that I had to watch it twice because the first time I went, okay, that's it. I felt like there was going to be more, but I still enjoyed it. And then watching it again, I went, I understand 
understand what they're trying to do. And it's interesting how you talk about the heartbreak because John C. Riley comes off as just like a typical surveyor that you would ignore on the street or you you might stop if you have a few moments of time. But he really doesn't know how to react to some of the responses that he gets. Like it's not just he's just taking it for whatever survey. He's generally interested in knowing why these people are responding the way they do. And the way his face contorts when Mike White says that he's no one's favorite person was just heartbreaking and it's just a, a, a simple moment like the film's only what three minutes yeah but they found a way to pack enough interesting emotion in it but also leave enough vague that you're curious to find out more and i think that's the one thing that left me with this film like i, I was curious to find out more i want to know more about the survey more about each of these people i thought it was really well done and it's weird for me to say of a three three and a half minute short but that mike white part i need to get more familiar with his career because every time I've seen him, he just manages to find some way to break my heart because he is great in in light. And here, I like that you picked up on Riley because he's so good at that kind of hangdog, sad fella that this is almost unusually confident for a John C. Riley role. And it, yeah, it's this lack of understanding in a weird way. The more that I've grown with it over time the more that i've also appreciated uh choi chavez's part he comes last he responds initially in a way that i think most people would respond he basically says no i'm not interested in political stuff the way that riley tries to convince him is like you know it's not political we're just wondering who loves you i love the many meanings you could take with one of his last responses because he says something to the effect of i don't believe in this free love being in america in the 60s and 70s and all that free love is associated with hippies and drugs and sex everywhere but in this context it's just free love to each other in some way and that's why i like that riley has that bag of oranges it it seems like one of those things that is unfair to me when people criticize july because they think that they have these twee details with no purpose but that bag of oranges is his way of awkwardly giving people something to love on the way home and that's why i love the end of white's part because it really gets to whatever that relationship he's in almost to the heart of it you get that sense immediately that the only reason he says that is because he's down on himself and riley recognizes it and just says hey take take a bunch of oranges so that free love is Association. Well, it's hippy dippy love, trippy acid stuff. Here it's just free your love, literally. Just find someone if they need to be appreciated, show them some appreciation. And there's something about Mike White's face when he's offered the oranges and he realizes that there's no strings attached that it is oddly delightful like whenever i see him no matter what he does i always think back to i think was it chuck and buck back in the 90s a film that i believe he wrote and co-starred in where he played like the creepy obsessive friend i guess you can kind of say single white female-esque obsessive character but here the fact that he doesn't think anyone loves him but a bag of oranges brings him the most delight there was just something really compelling about that it's one of those where again if i could follow him or if i could follow miranda july like i would love to see a follow-up where you see what happens to them after they leave the surveyor they go to their respective homes and i wonder if would miranda july contact her ex just to see where would she rank in the list of i guess past lovers if you will is she as high as she thinks because she's pretty confident and cheerful that her ex 
thinks the world of her. And it's like, well, maybe not. As you said, people's perceptions of each other. But for Mike White, there's just, I don't know, there was something about his particular story that I just absolutely loved. And I'll end on the Mike White note. I don't know why I'm not more familiar just with him as an actor. He's been involved with a lot of great movies. The Good Girl, School of Rock, even Nacho Libre has its high points, even if it's not the best movie. But he's a solid guy and he always emotionally affects me. And this is a great short. Speaking of greatness, maybe in a weirder sense, your short film, Courtney, why don't you tell us a bit about that? I will admit my short is a little off the rails. For me personally, I think wonderfully so. It is Odile A. Michel, and it's directed by Danny Sangra. The short is basically about a couple who, as we're introduced to them, their relationship is on the rocks, and we don't know exactly why. We're just introduced to Odell as she's on the phone with a friend who we never see, and we learn that Michelle is not returning her calls and hasn't talked to her in, I think, about a, a week or so, and she wants to know or why he's being so standoffish, and if he wants to break up with her, she wants a valid reason. So you follow her on this journey to his apartment and I'm not going to divulge what causes the rift because I think it, it's more amusing if you discovered it on it on its own. But yeah. it is a film that for, again, it's another three minute short, but for the first two minutes, it hits that emotional core that everyone can kind of connect with in terms of you recognize being in past relationships or current relationships where you have those type of arguments and familiarities. And then it throws you for this loop that is wonderful, but it still keeps that theme intact, even though it's gone off on a different tangent. This is going to be a fun challenge for me because I'm not big on the no spoilers thing. I would hope, but we're happy that you're listening either way. If anyone decides to tune in, watches the shorts beforehand, at the same time, it's our job to kind of make them sound interesting too. And holy crap with this. Without divulging too much, I love how it shifted kind of as a small and effective little drama because I was looking at the background details and Michelle's apartment. She's worried that he's so distant from her, but he still has those big photographs of her up. And the way that he cloaks himself, he just looks like he has depression. Then when that shift occurred, it just transcended itself. I... It's, it's become shorthand, so I'm going to use it, but I'm going to use it hesitatingly. But there's the manic pixie dream girl thing. We could argue one way or another that's been a trope in movies, period, men and women, probably for stories for all time, not just movies. But here is such an incredibly specific critique of that kind of French free-spirited woman who shows up in a lot of American movies and a lot of the imports from France. I got a heavy, this person may not have liked... Amelie, Danny Sangra, who directed it, yeah, he, he may not have liked Amelie very much, or kind of seen some of maybe the tweeness in that as a negative, because when that shift occurred, it's hilarious, first of all, but it, it's so rooted in such a specific kind of character that it was just brilliant. And I don't like juxtaposing movies with real life, but this is one of those situations Oh, am I kidding? I love juxtaposing movies with real life, and I'm not editing that out because that's mis <laughs> that's my mistake to own. But I think more literal translations, and this is one of those ones where kind of translating it literally and then just snapping in, it worked perfectly. I came out of it with a different approach than you in terms of I don't think he is anti the pixie dream girl or the Amelie-esque sense of romanticism, but I think he found a way to take elements of that and, as you said, ground it in reality. Again, recommend everyone go to the modern superior website 
and click on the links where you can view this film online. But I will say that at the heart of everything, it's about communication and relationships in general are all about communications. And there's a wonderful moment where Michelle kind of compares her ordeal to his previous girlfriends and she brings up the point early on that one of the things that's bothering you is something that has always been with me something that you found charming and delightful at the beginning it's funny how in with relationships certain quirks or certain traits which we once found delightful or wonderful start to grate at us and start to erode the relationship outside so for her she's just being her and you even see that great moment where she tries to change but you really can't change who you are. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, we all are who we are, right? And maybe Michelle was just trying to tell himself that this wouldn't be an issue later on. But again, if you don't communicate and you're not discussing these things early on in a the relationship, they will fester away and destroy it. See, that's funny because as you were talking, I actually was switching my viewpoint from kind of the pessimistic to more of the optimistic. One big thing about relationships that work out is finding that connection point that does strain or that habit or attitude or something that does strain a relationship and they find some way to work with it. And I think it's really important here that he hasn't broken up with her and that she is different he's actually at the end trying to communicate that problem and they're trying to work on it i think it's kind of funny that you took a more optimistic approach and to me the conclusion you reached was kind of pessimistic and i started pessimistic and i'm thinking you know maybe these two crazy kids will work it out it's one of those where maybe because it's done in such a charming and inventive way that in my mind they're gonna find some way to work it out but they may not they leave you on that perfect ending where you must decide what's gonna happen but it could go either way and you'd still be happy with either direction because you at least understand what the problem is courtney i think that uncertainty that you're talking about will play greatly in our movie for the day so why don't you lead us into that and then we'll get started. Well, how about we take a quick break so we can change some reels, and then we'll come back with our feature film of the day, 1997's Love Jones. Our feature film of the week is Love Jones, the 1997 romantic comedy directed by Theodore Witcher and with Ernest Holzman handling the cinematography. In the film, Lorenz Tate and Nia Long play Darius and Nina, a poet and photographer respectively, who are trying to navigate the ups and downs that come with relationships. Andrew, this one was your pick. So do you want to lead us into why you want to discuss Love Jones this week? A lot of reasons. First of all, fall is right around the corner. And I was able to tell here because the temperature went from the 80s to mid 80s to 65 and below at the drop of a hat. While the leaves aren't certainly changing colors yet, I can feel it. The change is coming. One of the things that I love most about Love Jones is how it feels like a perfect kind of fall romance movie. And we don't really see many of those. There's nothing certain in Love Jones. There's a lot of beauty, there's a lot of honesty, and there's a lot of connections that here in the audience we want to see work better than they do. But those are the things I think that make it perfect fall romance sort of movie. We usually see things in the bright daylight, and everyone's happy and wearing dresses and skipping in the sun and yada yada, which I know it's an overgeneralization, but more romantic movies have a brighter color palette 
Love Jones is deeper. I mean that deeper in every sense. It's deeper in its uncertainty about what's going to happen with everyone. It's deeper with its supporting cast of characters, which in this case, my second time going through it, I was astonished at how much was going on in the background and how much that actually informed the relationship that we focus on between Nina and Darius, played by Nia Long and Lawrence Tate, respectively. And it's deep in the cinematography, too. There's no real flashy shots. There are a couple that are a bit more deliberately staged, but they come at really pivotal moments. Everything about this, I resonate to strongly. And Love Jones, I tell you, dude, if I had watched this in college or if I had stumbled upon it in some fashion, I don't think I would be able to shut up about this now. It's got the poetry. It's got the deep jazz. It's got the beautiful African influence. Even some of the conflicts that are playing out they're done in this wonderfully understated manner. Even when there's a big break, it's not a screaming match. It's more going back to our shorts, people trying to communicate with each other. This is also a movie that I will say, if you've got a friend that suggests you watch something, take them up on their suggestions every so often. It's impossible for us to watch every movie that can be made, even though both of us have years of reviewing experience. Take that chance, please, because I would not have discovered this otherwise. And while that sounds maybe more like a closing note for the cast, that's just the closing note for my intro. Uh, this is my second time around. I love it. Kick us off a bit more, Courtney. This is my, I guess, maybe second or third time, but I have definitely seen this film before. And it's weird because when I was talking to a good friend of mine about this podcast and just the type of films that we review, he said, oh, so you talk about films that no one's seen. And I feel with Love Jones, depending on... And I'm going to make a broad assumption, which I know you're never supposed to do. But depending on <laughs> one's, already done it, man. Go for it. <laughs> one's cultural background, I feel that there's going to be a large portion of people who have never seen Love Jones. And then there are going to be those where Love Jones was one of those films you had to see. For myself, and I'm actually going to use my sister-in-law as an example because she is not a big movie fan. She can't really tell you the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. But when it comes to films with predominantly black cast, she's seen them practically everything. This is one of those films that I know you say love don't you be like yep seen it right back in the, the late 90s it was one of those rare romantic comedies that showed a black couple in an interesting light and interesting not in the sense of just their relationship dynamics but in this film they're essentially both artists in their own way he's a poet slash writer she's a photographer who clearly has a gift that is not recognized by the popular establishment and there's a lot of art in it there's a lot of jazz as you mentioned like the African culture and the dance like there's a lot of culture within this film that doesn't really get publicized or translate. So this was one of those films that when you brought it up, I was like, oh yeah, I remember I hadn't seen it in ages. Now I will admit, for me personally, it doesn't quite hold up as well as I remembering it did. There's a lot of great moments, but I'll talk about the issues that I had with it a bit later on. But it was nice to revisit this story. And I'll definitely give you a respectful nod when it comes to the issues, because it's not perfect, but we don't talk about perfect movies here. We talk about awesome ones. And it's funny that you mentioned demographics and who probably would respond to this, because High Fidelity is 
one of the movies now. It may not have done massive business when it first came out, but we can quote it. I used to put it on every time I was cleaning my apartment. So I've watched it probably dozens of times. But with Love Jones, it feels like it should have had part of that audience. They're both mature in their own way, but there's so much uncertainty with Love Jones. Like the romance doesn't tie up in a neat bow. And you could maybe make the case that that's also what happens at the end of High Fidelity, but it's sent out on such a soaring high that people get to leave feeling good about themselves. Here with Love Jones, one of the recurring images that I really like is relationships weathering a storm. When we first see Nina, she's standing at her window looking really forlorn, staring outside into a storm, and she and her fiancé could not weather a storm together. They broke up because of that. And one of my absolute favorite shots later in the movie, after Darius and Nina have done a will-they-won't-they for Man, at that point in the movie, it it may have been a year or two. Just thinking about the scope in this movie, when you really break it down, is incredible. But they're kind of weathering the storm. And it's this beautiful shot of the two of them walking next to a fountain. And it's foggy, and the fountain is just spraying water everywhere. And it's a false weathering. They're not getting wet. They're not actually weathering the storm proper. It's funny reading up about this because that's actually Theodore Witcher's least favorite shot in the movie, which speaks to how artists can sometimes be conflicted with the way their audiences receive things, because I love that shot. That image of them by the fountain and the Lauryn Hill song from the soundtrack, because the soundtrack was pretty big back then. Those are the two things that I immediately identify with this film. It helps create that strong through line of will these two weather the storm or not. The last shot in the movie is them trying to weather the storm. They're getting wet together. They're in the rain. They finally said, screw it. We're actually going to work on this because another through line, especially in the dialogue throughout the movie, is whether some relationships are actually worth working on or not. With Love Jones, it feels like it's making that case both ways and both are correct that some relationships no matter how much work you put into it, it's not going to work out. I think that we see this more with Nina and her sparsely seen ex-fiance, and then the relationships that are worth every bit of work, but they are going to be work sometimes. Both of those views are responsible. And they are young people who don't want to get tied down, understandably, because it takes work to make a great relationship happen and blossom and all that good flowery language. When I think of Love Jones and the rain and that decision that they make at the end, we don't know if this is going to work. They're weathering it right now. But we've seen throughout the movie that they both are kind of prone of flights. It's just such a deep and beautiful note to end on. It's not 100% yay love conquers all. One of the things I liked about this film, and it also kind of bleeds into a bit of the things that irked me, but one of the things I liked was that the film takes place over a lengthy period of time. So essentially you're seeing snapshots of their lives and then also their lives together. And I thought that worked wonderfully. Even though you talked a lot about the storm and weathering in the rain, there's not really that big cinematic moment that you get in most romantic comedies where someone is running in the rain after two hours and professing his love or the boombox over the head kind of moment. 
Everything is handled in a fairly realistic way. The issue that I had, though, with the passage of time is the supporting characters, I think, suffer because of this. There's a part in the film where some of the supporting characters play a prominent role in their lives. So as we are following Nina and Darius... We're also seeing Darius's good friend played by Isaiah Washington, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, but uh, Savon. Savon. So Savon is kind of like the older brother figure who married and has a kid and is giving him words of wisdom. But then you also see snapshots of Savon's marriage crumbling because Savon seems to be spending time with another woman who he claims is a good friend of his. And you see that as that's crumbling, you see snapshots of it. And then later on, the wife is back and we're to presume that all all things are fine, but we never quite get the full gist of that relationship. And I felt like that needed a little more development. And the same with Bill Bellamy's character, Wood. And Wood is a friend of both Savon and Darius, who at some point in the film ends up having a brief relationship with Nina. It kind of causes a bit of a riff, obviously, in the friendship. And in Wood's eyes, he treats it more as a game of one-upmanship. He purposely takes Nina to places that he knows Darius is going to be there without telling her so that he can kind of be like, yeah, look who I brought on my arm. The problem I had with that character, though, is we get more of him than we do of Marvin. And I thought Marvin would have been the more interesting thing. Like, I want to know what caused the engagement to Marvin to break down. I wish we had more scenes of that and less of Wood being the fool for no apparent reason. So those were the problems I had. If you're going to tell a fragmented story and show us different stages of these people's lives, and you're going to bring in their supporting people along with them, at least give us enough detail with those supporting characters to make it interesting. Because having Savon say, well, learn from my mistakes doesn't really mean much because we didn't really know the full extent of his mistakes. Again, as we see with Darius and Nina, relationships are complicated. There's a lot of swirl going on. It's not just cut and dry. A lot of things there because, man, I, I think I kept veering wildly between completely disagreeing and then going, nope, you're totally right. The supporting characters are developed, some awkwardly, some strongly. I mostly agree with you when it comes to Savon. Isaiah Washington just plays him so strongly. But if we're going to try and see these reflections, I think one of the biggest criticisms I have of the way Savon's written alongside Darius and Nina is that with Darius and Nina, it's very much a 50-50. We get to see their mistakes their thought process, how things are in their world visually, again with the weather, and then where they're falling more deeply into love. That beautiful moment when Darius takes her out dancing and they're in that club and they're just those luscious dark blue and red suits and Ugh, I'm a sucker for a solid suit like that. But Savan is almost like a commentary catty corner character, like someone who is reflecting on the main characters, but not directly. I still love the way that Savan's little storyline ends because it's still uncertain. You know, Savan meets his wife and son and takes them back, but he has this look looking at his son as he walks in because the son's avoiding eye contact he pats him on the head and then Savon looks almost dejected like is this really what I want that moment wonderful as it is I think if it was coming from any actor other than Isaiah Washington it would not have worked with Nina's fiance I mean we might as well just call him that because his name almost doesn't really matter considering how much he's in the movie but 
Marvin to give him his respect. It feels like one of those moments that you're meeting a ghost that you wish you could forget. And I think that the reintroduction of Marvin works well. They both have that reaction. She more or less says, I wish I could forget this when she's telling her friend, I don't know if I'm still in love with him or not. But that passage of time, that's probably the down point in the movie. They just kind of get back together and then a few minutes later, it's done. Again, it's a little too convenient to what's going on in the main storyline because it seems like that point her relationship and Darius's relationships as they're separated they're just kind of going and then the side characters be it the fiance Servan or whatever they're watered down reflections of what's going on yeah and especially with her going back to Marvin and as you see the next scene you see them having conflict you don't realize between Marvin showing up and them having conflict several months have passed the film almost makes it seem like oh she went to New York stayed with Marvin for a bit and it didn't work out but then you realize in the conversations no she was there for several months and then it fell apart in that time you could have shown me a little more than this one scene that didn't convey any true emotion they do show the passage of time via the weather. It looks like her and Marvin's romance was spring-summertime romance. Everything's flowery, everything's happy until fall comes. So it serves as a good visual parallel between the two, but... Yeah, it just does go by a little too quickly, even though I know what to look out for. If we had seen maybe them settling back in together or anything like that, it might have landed a little harder. I can't fault too much, but it kind of feels like it's just there to perform a function and then move on. Where I will completely disagree with you, though, is on Wood's character, overall Hollywood played by Bill Bellamy. One of the running things throughout is Darius and Nina, whether they're actually falling in love or they're just kicking it. Wood is there for a good chunk of the movie, mostly sniping at Darius when Darius decides to be confident or anything like that. So he doesn't go away, even in those intervening years, when he charges in on Nina, basically, and says, we're dating, and then they date. (laughs) It's awkward, but considering how Nina responded to Darius earlier, she responded kind of this water's lukewarm when Darius was initially approaching her so strongly, and it wasn't until Darius showed his weaknesses that she started to respond. He's not a creepy stalker guy, and I love the fact that both Nina and Sheila, who's one of the mutual friends between Darius and Nina... (laughs) thought that Darius's plan to surprise Nina by looking at her address on a check was creepy as hell. Yeah, I'm glad they identified that as well, because that's one of those romantic comedy tropes where they show up at a personal spot and it's like, oh, how delightful you're here. That's a little odd. But here they point out, no, that is creepy. Going halfway across town and showing up at a woman's door unexpected is creepy. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes it does work. But those are the exceptions. And that's one of the things I really like here is that the exception is Darius's intelligence and his insecurity. That's more what Nina starts to respond. To. Relating that again back to Wood, his name is Hollywood. The dude obviously is secure with his ego and secure with communicating that. So since we've got the theme running through of are they kicking it or are they really in love? Wood has what Darius thought was his strong point, you know, his ability to kind of seduce and charm. Wood just puts that on overdrive. And then when things don't work out with Nina, his overdrive is done. He's going to overdrive elsewhere. That almost felt like a necessary part of their relationship. Not in the structural sense, like some of the problems Savon's writing has, but more answering that question, are we kicking it or are we in love? 
because it, this may be something where kind of like my personal experience comes into play. But uh, throughout high school and a decent chunk of college, I hung out with the theater kids. Some of them eventually got married. Some of them dated repeatedly. I'm guilty of that. And then some of them just crashed and burned. You get comfortable with this group of people. And that's where the tone of Love Jones is so important because those clubs and the bars are so inviting that you can see why these people would too would return to that so wood is almost a hostile comfort food so that she can dip her toes back into that environment without feeling too out of place and it's because of his decision to be wood and try and show her off that darius and nina seem to realize this may be our comfort and how we met but our comfort is with each other or at least we hope it'll be with each other so with savan i definitely agree with you same uh, to a point with marvin but with wood i think he's well situated in this that last point especially i think i'm gonna have to think again when i revisit that film because i, I can kind of see your point there one thing i will say though when thinking back to her relationship with wood and just her relationships in general i love like the fact that Nina was a strong woman in her own. You see her with, I guess, what, th- in three different relationships compared to Darius, who I think only had Nina and one other woman. But it's never addressed. Like, there's some times where in romantic comedies you have that scene where for some ungodly reason the male will call out the female for having so many partners or different boyfriends. And here she's a strong woman back in the 90s before the whole sex in the cities craze started that was just living her life trying the various relationships regardless of how much we see but i thought that nita was a very interesting character even through her foibles i never felt like she was a caricature nina felt like several women that i know that's the type of person that we don't often see in romantic comedies she's just a woman trying to make her way she's got a good head on her shoulder she's just when it comes to love some other darius they're trying to figure their way out and i thought that was one of the strengths in the script how Witcher crafted that character. And I even liked, was it Sheila as well? Because you see her with the group a lot and she drops a lot of knowledge and a lot of sense into scenes and you know puts wood in his place and puts all the men in their place when they're letting their egos run wild. And I kind of wish we saw a little bit more of her, maybe even more so than Josie, but such is life. And now that you mentioned that, I do wish Savan, if they were going to develop him like that, they tone it down and maybe make it a bit more like Sheila, who we do get this idea that she's going on with her life. She's managing her store and everything like that. What I like about her is that she doesn't exactly give Nina the best advice before Nina leaves. Sheila just kind of throws up her hands and says, all right, if he fights for you, cool. He's the real deal. If not, you're free to go. And that's that's just fundamentally dumb advice. You don't force a confrontation to test people. That rarely ever works well. And I love Sheila's performance there. Uh, Bernadette Speaks is the actress who plays her. Because you see the switch in her eyes of concern. You're going to screw this up, Nina. So resignation. Like they've had this conversation before. And it's probably why Marvin ended up being back in Nina's life. Because <laughs> Nina probably had this conversation with Sheila before about Marvin. Now Darius is there and with all his faults he's trying and then it's some of Nina's faults as well that contribute to it. The way that the women in Love Jones, the supporting characters, the way that they're used, it's weird because without that dramatic heft that they tried to give Savan, they're a lot more effective because you've got that great moment where Nina and Josie are in the back of that cab. And it's one of my favorite shots because Josie's trying to get the juicy details out of Nina as Josie realizes that Nina did sleep with him. And one of my favorite 
let's cut the bullshit lines of dialogue. She's just kind of hemming and hawing Nina is about what they did. It's no different than when Darius and Nina ended their first date. They're both trying to decide if they want to have sex or not. And Darius is like, I just want to talk. And they both break out laughing. They both know that's BS. And Nina is playing coy in kind of the same way with Josie. But when she breaks down and says, okay, yes, we did it. You get that quick insert shot of the cab driver looking back at the two of them. And it looks like he's trying to not break down laughing. And it's that look that also keeps that, again, from being a little creepy. He's amused by this. He's not uh, leering at it or being voyeuristic. He's amused by it. <laughs> and then when the look on Josie's face, when Nina tells her Darius's dick was speaking to her, it's this beautiful mix of longing and humor that a dick would be talking. The women in this as supporting characters are so much better utilized. And it's kind of surprising that the men come off so stiltedly in points when we get those beautiful quick moments with the women. One of the characters that I wish we got a lot more of was Eddie, played by Leonard Roberts, and he's such a unique presence in Love Jones. He has this soft-spoken, almost fey mannerism to him. We learn later on that he is straight, but that's what's so cool about his character is we don't know and we don't care. He could just be whatever. And he gets a great one-liner in when Wood brings Nina to the party and Eddie is looking at him and he says something effective, you are so foul. We don't get like a you motherfucker or why you gotta be like that. It's just such a specific way of speaking that Eddie shows throughout the movie that again he's a weird last-minute advice person. So the men are awkwardly deployed all over the place in different tones. The women, they're perfectly situated in this. And this would maybe be a bit of my kind of weird bias slash thought process going. But this movie was written directed by a dude. And I would not expect men to be that shallowly deployed. I, I would actually expect the women to be that shallowly deployed. But it goes to show why this movie has resonated and, and why it's even got a musical coming out based on it. I didn't know until you had mentioned it before we started recording that they're making a musical of this because I found it odd in the sense that I was like, this is not one of those films, not like uh, Hairspray or like The Lion King where you were, where a lot of people had seen and I guess it's probably grown into a bit of, of a cult hit, but I just didn't think that it hit that nerve with people that they were actually going to turn it into a musical. So it'd be interesting. Like, I mean, obviously this could work as a theater production. As a musical, it could probably work as well, even though the strength of the film is the things left unsaid. But I mean, I guess you can find ways through music to convey that. I think that a Love Jones musical would be a great maybe counter pairing to something like Passing Strange because Passing Strange is so direct with the songs and the music and it's more of a musical pastiche, but it's still about communicating those feelings strongly. In that case, it was alienation and confusion and racial identity. Here, it's more uncertainty in the specifics there's a lot of philosophy in it but it's not really about philosophy and that's another great moment too when nina corrects darius when he's trying to impress her with a quote and she says you think you're slick but that was george bernard shaw something to that effect so with the drums and the music what we get in there i could see a musical building from this out of a steady rhythm and since it plays with such deep, dark colors to begin with. We could see this almost ink painting of beauty on a stage because that's what we see in the movie. 
I think it'll translate really well, and I'm desperate to watch it. I'm actually interested to know what happened with this director, though. Just looking at IMDb, this looks like it was his only film that he directed. I think it looks like he wrote the script for the film Body Count with Forrest Whitaker and Bing Rames, but I'm surprised we haven't seen more from Theodore Witcher, and apparently he won an award at Sundance for this film. So clearly, this was a springboard for something bigger and better. It's just, I don't know what happened to him, if there's something in his personal life or what. It's kind of sad. A director who's able to provide such an honest look at human relationships hasn't done more work. I'm not too surprised, mostly because of how Love Jones resonates. Whatever life Theodore Witcher had before he wrote and directed Love Jones, that may be why Love Jones feels so lived in. All these people do have lives. Excellently portrayed by the women, spottily by the men, but at least that core relationship, it has that flow and structure of someone who's familiar with these environments. You know, it's not like someone touristing in these clubs that they would never go to. And that's also reflected in the plot points, like of how Darius's setback with his employment is he has to be let go from the poetry Mac he writes for, just as Nina is similarly let go slash quits from her racist boss who's a photographer she's at the time an assistant to i need to watch this more because even talking about those moments i'm just thinking of those one-liners on their employment when darius learns wood is dating nina or they're kicking it or whatever darius says something to the effect of you know in terms of our employment i usually quit my jobs you always get fired and witcher just plays that so subtly I'm wondering what the direction behind the scenes of this was like, because it's not like they're restraining an impulse there. You could make that a huge punchline. Same thing with Nina's conversation with Josie early on about Darius's dick singing to her. It's funny, but it's true. And if they just punched up the energy a little more, it would have felt like a clumsy punchline. So whatever Theodore Witcher did, this feels like the kind of movie that you got it out because you wanted to get it out. You had it inside you. You lived it. You want to present it to other people. And that's enough. Because like you haven't someone like Terrence Malick who made Badlands and Days of Heaven and then just disappeared. You know, he made two great movies and disappeared. I don't know. It's something to the way film academia is bad at addressing racism, because this should be that kind of mythic movie. And it totally is for those folks that have seen it. But it really hasn't generated the same stature for Theodore Witcher that Malick was able to develop with those two movies before dropping off the face of the planet. Well, at least until he reemerged and seems to be doing a movie every year now. But whatever happened with Witcher, this feels content. It ends uncertainly, but it's so confident and smooth and entertaining that To me, I would look at this, and if he said, that was good, that's enough, I would completely understand that, because it's so rare to find a movie this smart and sexy and funny and deep and resonating. It's just all so good. 
Yeah, I would definitely hope that is the case. As you said, the characters interact in a way that feels honest and true. I just think back to you know, when we were talking about Casey Lemons, The Caveman's Valentine, and how that film didn't make money, and that kind of hurt her career for a bit. Love Jones, what I understand, wasn't a huge hit. So obviously in some areas it did well, but I don't think it made the kind of money that Hollywood will greenlight a second film. So that's why I'm, I'm just hoping it's not the latter, because there's certain directors, like Terrence Malick is a perfect example of someone who can take time off and then come back and do what he wants, still get praise, still find funding somehow, whereas for a lot of other directors from different cultural groups don't have that affinity. So let's end this on a positive hope and say that Witcher did what he wanted to do and is now living a comfortable life somewhere, hopefully writing still, because he's definitely a talented writer, so I, I, I hate to see that go. What I want to end on is once again, this movie has great one-liners. I could not find a way to work this in overall, but when Darius is trying to romance Nina initially, and he brings her those CDs and they listen to stuff with each other, I love the way that he's persistent because he says, I'll start bringing you Prince CDs. You know how that brother pumps out four or five albums a week. <laughs> and with Prince's recent passing and that wonderfully written and executed one-liner, we go on with life, much like with Love Jones. It's a good film. It doesn't quite hold up for me the way it once did, but I still enjoyed it, minus the few issues that I had. And it's a solid romantic comedy that more people really do deserve to see. We're so inundated with the same outlandish, broad romantic comedies that every once in a while it's good to just see real people in real situations. Yeah, so I will, I guess, add a second climax to my ending and circle back to the beginning because Love Jones is great with that symmetry. Please watch this. Please, please, please buy the DVD, rent it, talk to your friends about it. I obviously adore this in a different way. This whole podcast is about searching out those corners, listening to those suggestions. That's my suggestion, folks. And that's a wonderful note to end on. Andrew, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Can't Stop Drew. And I can also obviously be reached over at Can't Stop the Movies. Not updating it as much because I'm focusing primarily on this, but I have my extensive collection of reviews there. And I will also include a link to our recently set up email if you would just want to email Courtney and myself directly. And where can people chat with you? People can find me at Cinemaxis or on Twitter at SmallMind. And you you can also contact us via the Modern Superior website. And I'd like to give a quick shout out to the whole Modern Superior family because they've been really great at embracing our show and also helping to promote our show because Lord knows I am terrible when it comes to self-promotion. But others have really gone on the bandwagon and have been tweeting about the show on and putting it on Facebook and stuff. So we really appreciate it. And also, I finally started to listen to Fight School on the Modern Superior Network. And it's, all, it's a show all about TV pilots where they just talk about different pilot episodes. That was like my crack for the last week, especially putting in some long hours at work. So a lot of great stuff at Modern Superior and big shout out to the whole network. We're lucky to be in such good company. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Change of Reels. Thank you for listening. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 